Daniel chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. He was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king. And the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means. But they could not explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself, and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king, and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness, and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. 
You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel parsin. This is what the words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is God's word. Uh, good evening, let me have my welcome. My name's uh, Matt Fuller, I'm one of the ministers uh, here at Christchurch, if we've not met. And there it is, it's sort of official, kind of. God likes graffiti. And um, if you're that way inclined, uh, a budding Banksy, God approves. Um, I don't know if you ever look at some graffiti, it is very good. Uh, obviously, if it is a Banksy, it's worth a lot of money. You can try and, no, you don't try and steal it because then you get in trouble, don't you? But um, every so often, I do scribble down something uh, just on my phone when I see something that amuses me. These amuse me. There are 10 types of, this is a graffiti, there are 10 types of people in the world those who understand binary and those who do not. That's a great maths gag right there, isn't it? How many great maths gags do you know? Five out of four people can't do fractions was underneath it. It's not quite as funny. But my favorite of the last six months that I jotted down, praise God for the man who invented blinds. Otherwise, it would be curtains for all of us. I thought it was very good. It's very good. good. I didn't write it. Don't don't moan at me. I thought that was good. Someone bothered to write that on a wall. Uh, I don't think God does approve of graffiti. Unless it's your wall, which is fine. Should we pray? Our Father, at first glance, this is merely a strange story from centuries ago. But we know also that this is your word to us today, that you speak through your word, and it changes us. It is life-changing, as we've heard from those interviewed this evening. So please, by your spirit, change us. As we hear your word and you do your work in us, be at work in us, we pray tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome. If you're joining us tonight, uh, we're spending three months in the book of Daniel, and uh, what you've missed so far is, essentially, the most high, that is God, is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he will. That's the message of the book of Daniel. That phrase actually came up uh, in our reading tonight. But that's the message over the whole book. Um, We're centuries ago, and God's people, uh, the Israelites, are in exile. They've been destroyed as a nation, carried off into exile from uh, Israel, the land as it kind of is now, Palestine, uh, into Babylon. And so that's where we we find them. And yet despite that, the message of the book is, in spite of appearances, God is in control. It doesn't always look that way, but he is in control. And here's another, once it's a crazy story in the life of Daniel. It's uh, interesting 
when you read through Daniel's life. And it's easy to, to read something like this and think, oh, back in Bible times, it was zany miracles every minute. But if you do the sums in the book, Daniel is in his 80s now, and he's had three visions to interpret in the whole of his life. So it's not that crazy a life if you're Daniel. I take it most of his life is mundane, honouring the Lord, just like you and me. But here is one of those occasions. And if you were here last week, you could think, well, this is a bit boring, this is a bit Geoffrey Archer, cut and paste, isn't it? I don't know if that's fair, that's just an accusation. But, um, uh, ooh, some fans. I don't, I don't know if that's fair, I don't know if that's fair, it's an accusation. I've never read any of his books, I'm sure they're brilliant. Uh, but uh, chapter 4 is all about Nebuchadnezzar going mad, and then chapter 5, half of it repeats. Do you remember, Nebuchadnezzar went mad? He all... I just go through the motions again. Well, in one sense, that's the point. Because chapters 4 and 5 compare two proud rulers of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the first great ruler of Babylon who created the Babylonian Empire. And this his descendant, Belshazzar. Now, both are in, have an encounter with the living God. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled repents. And you can see that the last words we see, Nebuchadnezzar, are chapter 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. So Nebuchadnezzar meets the living God and is humbled and repents, becomes a believer, a proud man, humbled. Belshazzar, a proud man, meets the living God and does nothing. I think these two are meant to be held together as a comparison, and that's why you get so much of the chapter repeated. But for this man, this king, Belshazzar, the writing's on the wall. And of course, that's a phrase we use in English. It's entered idiom as bound to fail. The writing's on the wall for that company. It's going down the tubes. So, you know, the writing's on the wall. It's bound to fail. We know it ends badly. And of course, that comes from here, Daniel chapter 5. The writing was literally on the wall. And he's going to fail in his life. So the message of Daniel chapter 5 is God is sovereign. And it's a sobering one because here in chapter 5, he's sovereign in, well, in judgment. So do prepare yourself for when you meet him. This is a somber message, Daniel chapter 5, if a little crazy how it's written. Let's get into the detail. Uh, uh, it's been 23 years since chapter 4, at least. 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar died. And uh, Belshazzar in charge, is in charge. Can we just, for my own amusement, can we call him Shazza? That would just amuse me. <laughs> that, that, would, that would amuse me. Not many would know, but uh, Sharon Peters on the staff and the administrator and really is in charge. So we call her Shazza, and so that'll do. That'll amuse me. And she gets her comeuppance in the end, just so we notice that, just, just, just before she gets carried away. So Shazza's in charge, and we know from Persian sources, uh, scrolls, etc., that have been dug up, codexes and stone, the year is 539 BC, because we know that that's when the Babylonian Empire was defeated, and the Medo-Persian Empire took over as the dominant superpower. So we can date this precisely. It's 539 BC. We also know from these Persian records and accounts that um, uh, the, it was October the 10th that the Babylonian army was defeated in the wilderness, and two days later, 
the capital, Babylon, was destroyed. So we know precisely that the events of chapter 5, verse 30, Belshazzar was slain, Darius the Mede took over the kingdom, we know that's on October the 12th, 539 BC. So when we enter this story, Belshazzar knows that the whole of the Babylonian army has been routed, destroyed, defeated, and that his days are numbered. Two days later, he's going to be killed. What do you do if you know the end is nigh? We throw a party. That's what he does. Reckless debauchery in defiance of the emergency. That's what he does. So what have we got here? Chapter 5, verse 1. There's a thousand nobles, uh, all of his wives, golly, uh, and concubines. And what are they doing? Well, verse 2, they're drinking. Verse 3, they drank. Verse 4, they drank. So you get the sort of occasion. Is There's a thousand people there. There's wine, women, and song, no doubt. Uh, they're going down. If I'm going down, says Belshazzar, I'm going down in a blaze of debauchery. We're going to have a good time as we die. That's a very modern attitude, probably. I don't know what the purpose of this life is. So let's just go out and get drunk and have a good time. Because, golly, who knows what happens next? And those questions, they make my brain hurt a little bit. So let's not bother. It's a fairly modern attitude that he adopts. But the most pointedly, it's his approach to the Lord. So we've got this uh, uh, contrast. Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 4, verse 37. I see the error of my ways. I praise you and I repent. But Belshazzar, chapter 5, verse 2. What does he do? Well, we're given this little detail. He's drunk, presumably, chapter 5, verse 2. While Shazza was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so years earlier, 587 BC, Jerusalem invaded, all the treasures from the temple stolen and put into storage, because you don't mess with them. But now Belshazzar is saying, right, we're in trouble. All those trinkets of the god that the Israelites worship, and in fact my ancestor Nebuchadnezzar worshipped, get them out. So what he's doing here, it's not that he's run out of Royal Dalton. It's not that he only had a thousand wine glasses and they're on to dessert and they wanted something new. He's saying, right, we're in trouble. Hmm. Well, I'm just going to stick two fingers up to their God, the God of the Israelites, the God that my father or ancestor Nebuchadnezzar followed. It's two fingers up to him. Let's get all his, get, get all his ornaments out and drink and drink and drink in them. That's what's going on. Ah. Verse 5. Suddenly. Interesting. We don't know who spotted it first. You know, you can imagine it in a film. It was a sort of comedy. The bloke drinking his wine sees the, sees the writing on the wall and sort of turns to the camera and goes, ooh, or something like that. Because this is a bit unusual, isn't it? A hand appeared, verse 5. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster. No arm, no body, just a hand. That's a bit freaky. Now, verse 6 is uh, is very polite in how it's translated. We're told that uh, Shazza's face turned pale. He was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. Literally, the knots of his joints were loosened, or 
his bowels gave way. He's a bit anxious at this moment in time. He has a little accident, is what the Hebrew actually says, very politely translated here. He's scared by what he sees in front of him. And you would be, let's be honest. That would unsettle you somewhat if you saw that before you. So what does he do? Well, verse 7, he calls out for the enchanters, the astrologers, the diviners. Now, if you've been here for the last four weeks, how have these guys still got jobs? (laughs) They never get it right. He calls all them out, uh, but they do no good. Eventually, the queen mum comes out in verse 10. I think she's probably demeaning. Oh, for goodness sake, pull yourself together. Don't be alarmed. Don't be so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the gods in him. There is a man called for Daniel. Daniel, as I say, if you do the chronology in the book, he must be about 80-odd something by now. But they call for Daniel. Daniel comes. Daniel can, yes, all right, I'll I'll translate it for you. You can keep all your treasure. I'm not interested in that. I'll tell you what the writing on the wall means. But it's not good news for you. Because you have failed in at least three ways. And let's break down the rest of the uh, sermon like this. Failure. There's a failure to learn from the Lord, a failure to honour the Lord, and there's a failure to plan for his weighing. You've failed in these ways. So first then, there's a failure to learn from the Lord. Uh, verses 18 to 22. And what you get mostly in this section is uh, Daniel recounting the events of Nebuchadnezzar's life. So uh, chapter 5, verse 18... Uh, Let me try and summarise it for you. God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty, greatness, glory and splendour. But, verse 20, but when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed of his throne, stripped of his glory. What happened to him exactly? Verse 21, he was driven away from people, given the mind of an animal, he lived with the donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And that happened. We know it happened, and again, the the secular scrolls will tell you, for about ten years, Nebuchadnezzar disappears off. Eventually he comes back. Uh, So he was driven mad until, end of verse 21, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he pleases. Okay, so a brief recount of the, uh, the family history. Here's the implication. Here's why I've told you this, Belshazzar. Verse 22. But you, his son, or descendant, you can translate it either way. You, his son, O Belshazzar, you've not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You knew this. Okay, we don't speak about it at every family gathering. But when great-grandpa Nebuchadnezzar went eoring with the donkeys and chewing the cud with the cows, we know that happened. You know that happened. We don't really forget that. It was a pretty memorable few years when he lost the plot. You know that. You know that when he came back and took his throne, he said, it's because I was proud and arrogant and God has humbled me and now I acknowledge that the living God is ruler of the universe. You knew that. And still, still you've rejected the living God. You have no excuse. Now, how much more so for you and for me in the 21st century? 
how much more so, whether we're Christian or not, we don't have to learn from mad great-grandpa Nebuchadnezzar. We can learn from Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. We know this, Daniel would say. Now let me pause just here for a moment. I take it a number here would, would just assume that the Bible is all made up, probably by mad uncle, whatever, David, or whoever it may be, just wrote down these stories, and it's all a load of myths and legends. Now, Daniel 5 is quite an interesting example in this regard, because for, for actually for centuries, historians said Daniel 5 is nonsense. This is nonsense. Because we know that after, we know from these secular sources that after Nebuchadnezzar, there were three other kings of Babylon, and then the Medes and the Persians took over. And none of those three kings was called Belshazzar. It doesn't appear anywhere. No record of any Belshazzar. This is made up. It's nonsense. The last king of Babylon before the Medo-Persian Empire came in and took over was Nabonidus. We know that. It's documented. This is drivel. And like the rest of the Bible, a load of nonsense. Ignore it. And then a few decades ago, they started digging up one or two extra bits of archaeology. And, oh, there's references to Belshazzar. Oh. And he's Nabonidus' son. Okay, but he's the son, but he never reigned. It's still not correct, is it? It's still not accurate. And then a few more discoveries. Oh, for the last number of years of his life, Nabonidus was off with the army and appointed his son Belshazzar as regent, ruling in the capital of Babylon. Ah. And then in Daniel 5, the offer, if you're able to translate these writing on the wall, is you become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Why the third highest ruler? Because there's the king, Nabonidus. There's Belshazzar, the regent. Next best you can get is third. And all of a sudden, this ridiculous chapter that everyone knows is made up, is a load of nonsense. Oh, actually, it's much better history than we've been writing for years. Oh. Oh. Now, why do I tell you that? I mean, it might be interesting if you like your ancient Persian history, uh, or maybe not. I only tell you that for this reason. If you reject the Bible's authority, why do you do so? Have you ever actually looked? You just heard people say, oh, it's all a load of nonsense, you can't take it seriously, so you just assume that's the case? Have you looked? Because if you look into the historicity, golly, it's good. You have to take it seriously. A good friend of mine um, from university, I've known him almost getting over, uh, over 20 odd years now, uh, Johnny, I, we meet up every so often. Johnny, why are you not a Christian? You know why I'm not a Christian, because I'm not sure the Bible is historically true. Do you have any reason for doubting it? No. No. And if I'm honest, that's my excuse. I don't want to change. I like my life as it is. Take it seriously. Because the message here of Daniel 5 is... You knew this. And so I wonder if there's some who need to hear that explicitly tonight. I don't know. But some need to hear, you know this. 
Jesus Christ has been nagging away at your conscience for a while now. You try walking away, that hasn't quite worked. And you, you know this. Well, address it. And some here will be Christians, and you know, you know you're living in a slight, you know, you know you're doing something wrong, you're in a pattern of sin that you shouldn't be. And again, to us, Daniel would say, look, you, you know that's not right. You know what Jesus teaches. You know this. You've got no excuse. There's a failure to learn from the Lord, is the first mistake. Secondly, let's pick up the pace. Secondly, there's a, a failure to honour the Lord in uh, verses 22 to 23. So the accusation then in uh, verse 22 is that uh, Shazza's refused to humble himself, who wouldn't trust in the Lord, but the particular form of his pride is defined in verse 23. So verse 23, uh, you've not humbled yourself, though you know well all this. Instead, what's he done? You've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and in particular, you've had the goblets from his temple brought to you. And you and your nobles, your wives, your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone, etc. Now, forgive me, but if you were here a few weeks ago for chapter 2, you know that there was this vision that Daniel had, this enormous statue, which represented all the great empires of the world. And the statue was made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and feet of clay or stone. And here they're worshipping the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and stone. And so the point is, Belshazzar is saying, I don't give a monkeys about the god that you followed, my grandfather. I trust in human strength. I trust in empire. I trust in what the sword can achieve, what power can achieve. That's what I'm trusting in, not in the living God. It's a failure to honour the Lord. Now, I don't know what's going on in Belshazzar's head, we're not told explicitly, whether he just hates the religion of grandpa and grandma and wants to go off on a frock of his own. It's so boring, let's try and experiment with other gods, etc. And because you see that all the time with people who have some form of Christian upbringing, uh, but just throw it away and just go off, off in the opposite direction. I don't know if Belshazzar's one of those sort of youngsters. Or perhaps more obviously, his two-finger salute to the living God is simply that the army's been destroyed, the capital's about to topple, and he thinks God's not working. The God of my grandfather is not working. God doesn't appear to be working. I need to trust in something else. And again, that's a fairly modern attitude. I'll try some other God to keep me safe. It's a fairly obvious point. But if you, if you do reject Jesus Christ, if you reject the living God, you will live for something else. Be it the godlet of the goblet, or whatever it may be, you'll have your own little God. There's something that you think, okay, God, that doesn't appear to be working. What am I going to build my life around for significance, for security, for purpose? I've got to build my life around something. And I wonder what it'll be. I read a striking review uh, recently. 
so a, a new book has been released. It's called Our Necessary Shadow. It's a history of psychiatry, if you like such things. And uh, I read a review of it, uh, Brian Appleyard in the Sunday Times. Uh, his review, uh, his description of it was, the book basically says, if you were tempted to read it, uh, the book basically says uh, psychiatry. It's flawed but humane, so let's keep going. Very striking, I know it's come up because you're looking. Uh, very striking was uh, one little paragraph in the review. This is Brian Appleyard. Psychiatry is a necessary shadow. This is partly because the most severe mental illnesses cause some of the worst suffering we can imagine. And common humanity demands a response. Psychiatry, in short, is a faith to replace the faiths we've lost. Do you see what he's saying? Golly, mental suffering is so painful that we there's something in our human nature that screams out, why is that? How can that be? That's not right. I want an explanation for that. But if you rejected the God of the Bible, you have to have some other explanation. And so, psychiatry, why not? It's flawed, all sorts of guesswork. But how about that as an explanation? Well, that won't be everyone's cup of tea. Some here will pursue that. Others will think, oh, I don't want anything like that. But we'll pursue other little gods for their answers to what is the purpose of life, to what am I doing here, to what do I want to achieve. And they'll be different. Family, must get married, must have children, career, must reach that level, whatever it will be. But we have our own little godlets. God's not working. Jesus Christ doesn't work, doesn't fit. What else? I need something else. There's a failure to honour the Lord. But Daniel 5 says, how foolish. Because look at what the gods of, or the godlets are like. In uh, verse 23, you praise the gods of silver or gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone. But what are they like? They cannot see or hear or understand. Whereas, says Daniel, the living God hears your prayers, sees the whole of history, understands what you genuinely need above all else. So why reject him and live for something which neither sees or hears or understands? Now, honour the Lord. He's wonderful. He sees he hears, he understands, honour him, enjoy him, but honour the Lord. So a failure to learn from the Lord, a failure to honour the Lord. Uh, last thing, briefly, uh, there's a failure to plan for his weighing, which I guess is the heart of the matter in verse 23 to 28, a failure to plan for his weighing. Uh, end of verse 23, so these, these false gods, they cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honour the God, how's he defined Verse 23, the God who holds in his hand your life. So foolish to reject the one who holds you in his hand. I take it probably, I'm guessing, but probably that's why just a hand appears on the wall and nothing else. Because you're in the hand of the living God. And you and I need to remember that. We only hold our lives on loan from the one who made us and who owns us. 
and calls in the loan at some point. Belshazzar, so wealthy. Can you throw a party for a thousand friends? I can't. Would you want to be married? No, don't go there. But um, so wealthy, so affluent, so impressive, and yet four words, and he loses control of himself, and he collapses. He's a nervous wreck. Just four words. Mene, mene, shekel, parsim. Four words, and he collapses. Now, what are those words? We well, can see from the footnote that literally they're weights or measures, but Belshazzar would have known that. What Daniel gives is the interpretation. Numbered, weighed, and wanting. And therefore judgment will fall this night upon you, Belshazzar. The Lord has numbered your days. He's weighed you. Are you worth saving for eternity or not? No. Judged and rejected. A failure to learn from the Lord in the scriptures will lead to a failure to honour him, will lead to being weighed and wanting. And so verse 30, very somberly, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. That's it. Done. Let me finish just with two things. An encouragement and a warning. If you're a Christian here tonight, look, I think there's an encouragement here. I don't know. I, this may just be me reading this. But um, for 23 years, Daniel's been sidelined. Under Nebuchadnezzar, he'd been the most important man in the kingdom. He'd been prime minister of the greatest empire the world had known at that time. And then for 23 years, he's sidelined. So the current monarch doesn't even know he exists. It's the old queen mum who has to say, get Daniel back. He's the only one he knows. Because just Daniel's been sidelined for 23 years. Let's call him 80 years old. For 57, yes, from 57 to 80, certainly half that time he's deemed at the peak of his intellectual capacity. What a waste. Sidelined for 23 years. Just ignored. Put out to pasture. Not invited to the banquet has to be called in at late notice. Now, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I find that encouraging because if you're a Christian, many of us will find that our friends, colleagues, family members are actually not interested in Christianity. Couldn't care less. They just, if you bring it up, they'll push it away. And that could go on for years. And then something happens. You know? They get married, a baby's born, they lose their job, they get sick. Either something good or bad, I don't know what it is, something happens. And they say, you're a Christian, aren't you? Can you interpret my life for me? I've got no writing on the wall, but what is going on? How do you cope in this sort of scenario? And then all of a sudden, after 23 years, there's an opportunity. Daniel took his opportunity, took his chance, just... I find that encouraging. It's not non-stop for Daniel all the way through this book. For years, no one's asked him a bean. I think that's encouraging. Take your chance when they comes. But I think the main point, the main purpose of the uh, chapter 5 being here is it is a warning. A very simple warning in one sense. The writing's on the wall for your life and for mine. One day, 
we will be numbered and we'll be weighed. And what is the verdict going to be upon your life and mine? That's the question. Final judgment, says the Bible, has been placed into the hands of Jesus Christ. And one day we'll all appear in his scales. Well, think of it, perhaps, scales are a bit odd, clambering into a set of scales, isn't it? Perhaps think of it as a seesaw, a children's seesaw. And you know if you get on one of them these days and you've got your whatever it is, your, your child or your niece or your nephew who's maybe five, and you get on and they get on the other end and you can have fun with them and go, bomb, and they go, woo, and they go off the other end. And uh, you're in control because, you know, you're, I don't like to, I'm not going to tell you what your weight is, but you're uh, eight stones, say, or I don't know if that's offensive, whatever it may be, your weight, but they're at least half, so you can bounce them into the air. But on this set of scales, this seesaw of judgment naturally, you and I get on and they don't move. Because we're weighed and we're nothing. We're weighed and we've not lived a life that God God deems acceptable. That's the truth of our scriptures. None of us do. All of us, upon that final day, will have the verdict weighed and wanting. But that's why Jesus Christ came the first time 2,000 years ago. He became nothing so that we may receive the weight of glory. That's what happens upon the cross. Upon the cross, he just swaps places with us. We deserve rejection by God, but Jesus takes that. He deserves the weight of glory, but we get that. There's a swap or an exchange, a substitution upon the cross. So even though naturally we are weighed and wanting, the verdict upon those who place their faith in Jesus Christ is weighed and loved. Weighed and weighty. Weighed and expecting the weight of glory to come. All of a sudden, weighed and accepted in God's sight because of the work of Jesus Christ. But unless you put your faith in him, you and I were just feathers in the breeze, sitting on that seesaw, blown away, inconsequential, nothing rejected. That very night, Belshazzar was destroyed. So the call of Daniel 5 would be, place your faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord is sovereign over judgment. Judgment has been placed into the hands of Jesus Christ. Naturally, we're weighed and wanting, facing judgment. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are weighed and loved by him. The weight of glory is your destiny. And what you do in this life now will last into eternity. Weighed and wanting weighed and loved. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Don't fail as Belshazzar failed. Let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Heavenly Father, here is a serious message on a night when we celebrate uh, the baptisms of these three. Thank you again
for their lives and their faith in Jesus Christ, their testimony that they know that naturally they were weighed and wanting, but trusting in Christ, they are now weighed and loved and have a hope of glory with you. Father, we pray that we would be those who are ready for that day, that we're prepared, so not shocked. Father, would we trust in Jesus Christ, so when we're weighed, we'll be found in him. We ask in his name. Amen.